Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I am the Youth Director here at SFBC. This week, Pastor Rod Heppel shares the next message in our series, Exploring the Life of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Enjoy! We are into John chapter 8, and if you have your Bibles, and we always encourage you to bring it either electronically or paper format, I'm still old school, I still like my paper format, like to mark it up and write it up, but I know a lot of you have your Bibles on your phone these days, and I think that's great. Wonderful advantages to be able to have your phone uh, be your Bible and have it at work or wherever you are. You know, you have a coffee break and you're wondering, where can I fit a few moments in my day to spend with the Lord? Hey, that's a good option for you, as well as all the other apps that go with it. Most of us have heard people make audacious claims, right? Years ago, and I know I've told this story before, so if you remember it, forgive me, but I love sports stories, and this is one of my favorites. Back in 1983, Wayne Gretzky was leaving his mark on the hockey world. Uh, people were starting to take notice of the fact that he had led them to multiple Stanley Cups at that time. And it was about this time that a sports writer, in one of his articles, nicknamed him the Great One. And it started to catch on. He did not bring this title on himself. It was thrust on him, much unlike Muhammad Ali, who at age 22 called himself the greatest, which eventually became the greatest of all time, the GOAT. Wayne says that back on this day in 1983, the Edmonton Oilers were playing the Los Angeles Kings at the Forum in Los Angeles, and all of a sudden, Ali came into the dressing room, and he announced, I'm looking for the one they call the Great One, and all the players pointed to a 170-pound Wayne Gretzky sitting in the corner. Ali came over to Wayne Gretzky and said, I hear you're the Great One, just remember... I'm the greatest. And he shook his hand. Wayne said, I had no objection to that. I just said, fair enough. And I slunk back down into my seat and let him go on his way. It's not that Ollie was wanting to pick a fight with Wayne Gretzky. He just wanted to clear the record. And after that encounter, they met each other numerous other times and became friends. You've probably heard people make audacious statements. I mean, that's pretty audacious, right? Sometimes they come true, and sometimes... They don't, and people are proven to be a fraud. In today's sermon, Jesus is making a very audacious statement about himself that the religious leaders are going, what? How can you make that statement? Now, even without knowing the context for this statement, oh, there's Muhammad Ali. There's Wayne. Even, sorry, folks, before before we even know the context for making this statement, Jesus just simply says, as you know of late, it's been a problem for me, and I do apologize, but um, it seems to really hit me right when I want to preach. Um, The statement stands alone as being one of an audacious statement, audacious, daring, bold, fearless. I am the light of the world. That's what Jesus says about himself. Now, there's a context for it, and if we know the context, it even makes it greater. Because if Jesus had said, I am a light in the world, we'd go, okay. And those religious leaders would have said, okay, maybe, how? But the fact that he says, I am the light of the world, well, that's a whole different category. We ask the question, who can actually make a statement like that? Now, when we began this sermon series, we looked at John's prologue, which I've highlighted some of the verses here that speak to Jesus making this statement, I am the light of the world. 
Um, because John does in the prologue, he outlines the things that he's going to uh, be touching on in more detail later on. Thank you, Kevin. So what he does in the prologue is he brings out the fact that he's going to be talking about light. And then in chapter 8, he begins to talk about light, and he does so in chapter 9 as well, and then again in chapter 10 and, and onward, chapter 12. So what, what John does here in his prologue is he introduces us to a theme that he wants us to understand that we need to understand what this means by way of Jesus being the light of the world, that he is spiritual light. So it says in John's prologue, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, of all humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And that's what we're going to see in today's story in John 8. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, being the Jewish people. So that's the prologue. That's John's kind of summary of this important theme called light. And today we're going to enter into Jesus' own statement, I in the light of the world. It comes in John 8, verse 12. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. That's basically the verse we're going to land on today, even though there's a much longer dialogue in John chapter 8. This is where I believe the Lord led me to this week and what I want to bring forward to us. So if we break it down a little bit here, uh, he makes the statement, I am the light of the world. And then he says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So he's making a claim, and he's giving an offer. And this is an amazing statement. Now, Jesus is very strategic when he makes his statements. If you remember from last week, it was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life, because that tied into the manna that came down from heaven. And so as they were celebrating the Passover, they would be remembering the words of Jesus. Now, Jesus again strategically is going to say that he is the light of the world during another festival. The Jewish people had three festivals each year that they were to attend in the city of Jerusalem. And if they couldn't make Jerusalem, then they, they held them in their communities, but you had to travel to Jerusalem for at least Passover. This particular festival, when Jesus makes this statement, I am the light of the world, is called the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, it takes place in September and October. The Passover feast took place in April. Then later in the year, they would have this one that takes place in about October. Um, the Feast of Tabernacles is known by different names. It's known as the Feast of Booths, which I think sounds like booze, and I don't want to confuse people. They are not having a Feast of Booze. Booths, if you can say that, good, you can call it that. Or you can call it the Feast of Succoth, but that kind of sounds a little bit like Sylvester the Pussycat, you know. So I don't like either of those two just because for me, I lisp. And they're hard to say. So I'm going to refer it today as the Feast of Tabernacles. If you know it by one of those other names, good on you. I just kind of stumble over saying them. Now, why tabernacles? Well, a tabernacle is a temporary structure. It's a hut or a tent, something like that. And the people of Israel, when they were celebrating this feast, are remembering a time when their ancestors 
lived in huts and tents when they were in the, de in the desert. So what they did by way of this feast is they would come to the city of Jerusalem, they would set up all these little temporary huts, and then they would celebrate. So some of these huts kind of look like this. These are modern day ones um, that people still set up today when they're celebrating this feast. Uh, some a little more rustic, some a little fancier. And of course, for those of you who are lazy, you can go to Ikea and get this option. It's a joke, okay? You can't get that Ikea. But what were they celebrating when they were coming together to um, celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles? So here's a little history lesson. They were recalling the time when their ancestors had to go through the desert for 40 years. And while they were in that desert for 40 years, God provided for them before they came into the Promised Land, Cana, what's modern-day Israel. But more importantly, the people were recalling this. They were recall, recalling that God himself said that he would dwell among them and that they were to make a tabernacle, a temporary structure, a place of worship that would represent the presence of God. And God's presence would come down in that place. It would be visible. In Exodus 25, 8, it says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. It's the whole heart of this festival of Tabernacles or Feast of Tabernacles was to remember the very presence of God amongst his people that was represented by light. So that's a bit of the background on the feast. There were actually two ceremonies that took place at this Feast of Tabernacles. Two ceremonies, very um, object lesson type, tactical, visual. The one was relating to water. And the reason why is because, you know, God miraculously had brought them through the Red Sea. <clears throat> and then at a certain point when the people were complaining because they're in a desert and they're hot and they're thirsty, God commands Moses to strike the rock and water flowed out of the rock and fed all the people and their animals, right? So the water ceremony took into account God's miraculous provision of water while they were in the desert. Okay, that makes sense. He's quenching their thirst. And actually, don't lose that thought because in this very um, section of Scripture, chapter 7 and chapter 8, which are, are looking at this Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus has made this statement on the last day of this great feast, of this festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. So you have the God of Israel providing water so the people of Israel in the desert would not be thirsty. You have the ceremony of water and you have Jesus making that statement. That too is an audacious statement equal to I am the light of the world. The Feast of Tabernacles had the second object lesson which was called the ceremony of light. So picture thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem coming to the center of their place of worship which is the temple and they are going to recall what God did for the nation of Israel when his presence was amongst them by way of light. He said, I'll be a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. And when I move, when the cloud moves in the day, when the pillar of fire moves at night, could be a, a pillar of a, like a cloud, a cloud of fire that moves at night. When you see me move, you pick up your tents, take your family, and you follow me. I am the light that will guide you through the desert of Sinai. Now think about this imagery. This is why the people in Jerusalem have gathered. These are the things that they are remembering. This is the context for Jesus making his statement. When the nation of Israel was in the Sinai desert, there were no real landmarks to follow. There were no road signs. There's no GPS on how you get through this place, right? 
God would guide them. And he instructed the people through Moses that when I move, you move. And if they failed to obey God, they would lose their guide. Jesus says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Now, what came out of this expression of God's miraculous presence among the nation of Israel was this fundamental idea, according to Dr. Daryl Johnson, that Israel would come to understand that God can guide because God is light. And 1 John 1 verse 5 says, God is light. In him dwells no darkness at all. So you can just see this very powerful imagery. Um, In the time of Jesus, 1,500 years after the Exodus, approximately, the people are still remembering what God did then, and they are, in essence, anticipating the presence of God again in some real way to come, to rescue, to lead, to fulfill. That's the imagery around this. It's very much the same as the feast of... uh, The Passover feast that we looked at last week just was certain different emphasis of remembering. So at the Feast of Tabernacles, they're remembering their ancestors who lived in a tent. They're remembering that God provided water in the desert. They're remembering that God guided them by his light. And they're remembering, most importantly, that it's the presence of God, the very living God who comes to dwell among his people. Why? Because he loves them. And what about for us? Because he loves us. Revelation 21 talks about the future reality of when all things are culminated and we're in the presence of God and we're before his throne. It says that God will dwell amongst us and we will be his people and he shall be our God. Revelation 21. So the central element of this feast was the idea of the presence of God because it meant his light and it meant his salvation for the people. So what did this ceremony at Jesus' time look like? Well, it was a light ceremony. And what they would do on each night of the festival is they had four extremely large candelabras. And on those candelabras, each of them had very large bowls. I believe it was four on each one of these massive bowls of oil with wicks in them that they would light. And from that illumination... That lit up the city of Jerusalem, along with the fact that the men would carry torches. This is pretty cool. We should get this one going again, right? Carry torches, and they would sing, and they would dance all night long. And so there was this this great light that came from the center of their place of worship, the temple, and it went out to the whole city. It was called the illumination of the temple. And the people would worship God, remembering that he was the light. So with this optic of this great illustration of light, It was coupled with scripture passages that they would read throughout the week to remind them of what God had done. He divided the sea and led them through it. He made the water stand up like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with the light from the fire all night. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And this is just a sampling. The the readings would go on longer. Send me your light and and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain to the place where you dwell. Again, this idea of the presence of God amongst the people. Lead me there. Take me into the light. You are my salvation. Don't let me walk my own path. Isaiah 
The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Do you know in Revelation 21, that very passage I was referencing, it says that God is the light. There's no need for a sun. There's no need for anything to reflect the light, because the light is present. He is the light. God is light. In him dwells no darkness. John 8, 12, Jesus, with all of that in the background, the optics of the light and the illumination of the temple that lit up the city and the seven days of the feasting and the seven days of the dancing and the seven days of the reading of the scriptures that would remind them of who God is and his presence amongst them. On the last day of the festival, he steps up and says to the people, I am the light of the world. Who do you think you are? That's what they're thinking. Who is this that can make a statement like that? Jesus steps into the dressing room and says, excuse me, where's the one they call the great one? I am the light of the world. You can imagine the reaction. In essence, Jesus is saying this. Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying this. You have seen the light that illuminates all Jerusalem, but I am the light that illuminates the whole world. Do you follow? He's saying, you've seen the light for a week. I am the light forever. Wow, that sounds a lot like the Old Testament God. No wonder the religious leaders entered into like 50 verses of debate with Jesus. It's a long discourse. It's a long dialogue. It's a long debate. It gets very heated. They're, they're questioning basically his identity. Who are you? Where do you come from? Where is your father? Who is your father? How can you say this? Are you greater than our father Abraham? These are the kinds of questions that they asked Jesus. But Today, I'm not going there. I'm not going to go into this debate that ensues. You can do it, and if you want help kind of sorting through it, I would recommend D.A. Carson's commentary on John's Gospel. Absolutely fantastic. But what I want to do is highlight two things from this verse. Jesus makes a claim, and he makes an offer. And I think we need to understand the claim, believe the claim, and receive the offer. The claim is, I am God. That's where he's going with this. And the offer is life and freedom. That's what he's offering to us. So let's break this down and take a look at it. The first one. The first claim that Jesus, or the first point that I want to highlight is Jesus making a claim. The religious leaders are asking these questions. How does Jesus answer these questions? And I have laid out the verses for you so you don't have to read the entire dialogue. Verse 24 he says, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. Note that. I've highlighted it for you. You will indeed die in your sins. Now he's referring to the fact that if you reject me as the light of the world, if you reject me as your Messiah, the one that you've been waiting for, if you reject me as a Savior, there's not another one coming. You will look and you will not find me. That's what he says in the dialogue later on. But you will not find me. Why? Because I've already come. You will die in your sins if you don't believe. Verse 28. When you've lifted up the Son of Man. Now, if you're new to this language, 
Jesus references son of man. That is his favorite terminology to use for himself. It's a title. Um, Lifted up is referencing the cross. When you lift up the son of man, when you crucify me, is what he's saying, you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. And then the icing on the cake, the clincher, as this dialogue or this discourse goes back and forth between their questions and Jesus' answers, it's intensifying, it's building. And it builds to this very statement in verse 58 where Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. They got what Jesus was saying when he said, I am. You see, they were starting to get it when he says, I am he, I am he. They're referencing a bunch of scriptures in their heads. Now he says, I am, and they're like, there's no way out of this one. They're reading it right. I want to read some of those scriptures because we might not be as familiar as they were with them. A lot of them come out of Isaiah. In fact, I think all of them do that I have recorded here. Um, So Isaiah 40. One verse four says, who has done this and carried it through? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, Jacob, Israel. That's another name for Israel. Calls him Jacob. It's the nation. Listen to me, the nation of Israel, whom I have called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. For those of us who have read through the Bible, you might know, hey, I recognize that I am the first, I am the last. It comes out in John's other writing in Revelation, right? In the book of Revelation where he refers to Jesus as the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the great I am. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. I find that language of know and believe really interesting because as we've gone through John's gospel for the last number of weeks, we told you that John set his purpose out in the book. He wrote it in chapter 20, verse 31, and he said, I have written these things to you so that you might believe or that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you may have life. That's why we've titled it, That You May Have Life. And here we see in the Old Testament the same kind of language around knowing God, around believing in him, because he is the one who saves. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Note that. That's very important. There's no other God that is formed. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. That's why without Jesus, they will die in their sins. That's why without Jesus, any of us die in our sins. Finally, it's verse 58, where it's the clincher, as they say, you know. Verse 58, before Abraham was born, I am. They were in a conversation about the greatness of Abraham and that sort of thing. And Jesus just simply says, I am. He could have said, I was. Probably they would have gone, oh, well, whatever that means. But to say, I am, you're referencing Yahweh. You're referencing God. How could you do that? So the context for it is this Exodus 3, where Moses meets God. And this is when God is 
calling Moses to be the leader of the nation of Israel to bring them out of slavery. And, and to, well, God's using Moses for that purpose, of course. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Now, what shall I tell them? Now, we kind of might think that's a bit odd, but if you know um, the history to this point, it's not like the nation of Israel has a, a lot of their own theological understanding of who God is. It's through the encounters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they've come to know that this is the God who provides. This is the God who leads. This is the God of Israel. This is our God. But now, now, Moses is going to come to them and say, your God, our God, is asking me to lead you out of Egypt. Oh, really? Uh, what's his name? Who is he? It's the first time in scripture that God names himself. All the other times was through a human encounter. If Abraham encountered God, he said, you are. You are the provider. You are the one who gave us this ram in place of my son. Each time a person encountered God, they gave God a name. This is the first time God gives himself a name. And he says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I'll cut to the chase. Verse 58 is Jesus' claim to deity. He's not saying, I am the Father. He's saying, as the Father is God, so the Son is God. And they don't miss his blasphemy. They pick up stones to stone him. Except it's not blasphemy, because it's true. Jesus is the light of the world, who can therefore offer us light and freedom. So that's the claim he's made to be God, and now he's offering us something, and I want us to see it in these two verses, chapter 8, verse 12, and chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So he's going to give you light of life if you follow him. In verse 31 and 32, to the Jews who believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I've set these side by side so you can kind of see the parallels here. Follow me, hold to my teachings, never walk in darkness, know the truth, have the light of life set you free. Jesus wants us to know the truth and to follow him closely so that we don't walk in darkness, so that we might be set free. That's what he's offering. So we can know who he is, but do we receive what he's offering? You know, when we come to faith in Christ, it's based on one thing. It's based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. There's nothing I can add to that or take away from it. It's what Christ has done for me. You receive it by faith. But the second part here is that you must follow closely or you will be lost in darkness. Have you ever tried to follow someone through a city? It's really hard, isn't it? Unless you're like right on their bumper. It just takes one light that time's wrong and ah, where did they go? And you're lost. And I think it's kind of like that with our faith, too. So Jesus is saying, if you don't want to walk in darkness, follow me. I am the light. You know, and sometimes we wonder, well, Lord, how come you can't just, like, miraculously and instantaneously take the problem away so that we don't have to, like, follow? So that the following is easy. Can't you just fix the problem of sin that we have so that we don't have to follow? But that's what discipleship is all about. It's about following and holding on. It's about knowing the truth and standing in it. It's a battle of truth. You know, the enemy doesn't make us do anything. It's what we allow him to convince us of in our minds. And once we believe the lie, we buy the lie, we act on the lie. It's a battle for truth. Jesus wants to offer us something. Will we take it? I wrote my application for this message back on Monday morning. I didn't actually look back at it until... 
later in the week, like Friday. And I want to read it for you as I wrote it. I wrote this. I said, Jesus is light, and he offers us light if we follow him. But when we don't follow him, we allow darkness into our lives. Darkness settles on our minds and our hearts like a cloud. But he, the light, shines bright. And it can burst through our darkness. But it hurts our eyes. Have you ever come into a room where a person is sitting in the dark? The window blinds are closed and the lights are off. They're just in the dark. And it's a very depressing kind of feeling. And so you go to the window shades and you open the blinds. And the light comes pouring in and the person goes, Ah! Shut the blinds! But you know it's needed, right? It hurts, but it's good. The light of Jesus wants to pour into the darkness of our lives. Now, as a pastor, I was reflecting, and this is what I wrote on Monday. I hear a lot of your stories. I know my own stories. I have my own connections in this world. No one walks through this life unscathed by the darkness of this world. No one. Some of you are carrying the heaviest of burdens of all sorts. Lots of times, though, the ones that seem to hurt us the most are the relational ones. Kids and grandkids are not only not walking with the Lord, but they've gone into all sorts of troubled areas. Drugs and alcohol are prominent and surface. This is destroying them, and it's happening before our eyes, before your eyes, and, and it hurts because you feel helpless. Marriage relationships have suffered a deep hurt, and trust is broken and it feels like it's never going to be the relationship that you dreamed of. And so it feels like the death of this dream is things so close and intimate. Or even marriage relationships that have, have been broken altogether and the loss. And the pain of that runs deep. There's a lot of things in this world where we would say, yeah, I'm well acquainted with the darkness part. Where's the light breaking through part? What is this that we're about to participate in all about? And does he offer me something? And he says, I do. Follow Hold on to my teachings. Follow closely. The darkness is great in our world, and it's both out there and it's in here. And Jesus steps into that reality, and he says, I am the light of the world. Follow me, and you will never walk in darkness. Well, it's a true statement. If we follow him, we will not walk in darkness. So he's offering me life. That's what this table represents, the free gift of God to us at the highest cost possible to him, that we might have life. We can today choose to walk in darkness or we can choose to follow Jesus into the light. And what I want to do is we come to this table today. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up at this time. Um, we're going to be singing a song during our reflection. You can sing the song. You can reflect on the song. You can pray quietly. You all have your little packet, I trust. And at a point in time when you would like to participate in, in the bread that represents the body of Christ and the juice that represents his blood that was shed, you can participate in your own time. I've put two verses up here on the screen. Just for a moment, I'm going to read this through, and then we'll um, have the song played. But these are verses that I just, they spoke to my heart about the essence of what I feel God is leading us to as we come to his table. He says in Isaiah, I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. Can I just say, is that what you're looking for today in your own life? That you want God to turn the darkness into light before you and to make the rough places smooth? Claim that. 
These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. I praise you, Jesus. I praise you that you will not forsake us. Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. I don't know where your heart is at with God. I mean, there are times when our hearts can be hard and maybe your heart is. And I think there's a message to us here if your heart is hard that says the light is here, the moment is here, don't let it pass. Do not harden your heart, but rather soften your heart, receive this light so that you may become children of God. Whatever God's intentions is for you today through this message, I pray that as we sing this next song together, you will prayerfully reflect on what he's saying to your heart and then participate in these elements together. God bless you as you do so. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship sermon podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.